This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on iTunes, Google Play, or Spotify. We hope you'll subscribe and give us a good rating to help others find Out of Water. Welcome, folks, to a bonus episode of the Out of Water podcast. We first recorded this particular podcast on August 10th during back to school week. And Will and I had a special guest, uh, Eric Most, who is the new headmaster of Bethany Christian School, who is also an elder at Rio Vista Church. And we sat down to have a conversation about the dramatic changes that have taken place in the education of the youth in our country. So enjoy. This is a previously recorded episode interviewing Mr. Eric Most, headmaster at Bethany Christian School. Enjoy. Welcome, folks, to a special episode of the Out of Water podcast. And we are launching a new series of of podcasts where we're going to be talking about societal and cultural things. So in the normal Out of Water podcast, we're walking through particular books of the Bible. Right now we're walking through a series on Exodus, but we're going to we're going to add to that and we're going to do some episodes on societal and cultural topics which may get us in trouble. <laughs> Probably will get us in trouble. But talking about how the Bible comes to bear on some of the things that we're facing but also looking back at history and philosophy and how our culture is the way it is now. How did we get here is kind of the question. And so when I went through seminary, one of the, one of the classes that I took was a class called Christianity and culture. And the basis of that was talking about how you have this great conversation of the most brilliant thinkers throughout the history of humanity and how they are vying for supremacy in the minds of the people And so you can map them out and you can see how you have great, brilliant people in the ancient world. You know, you'd say Socrates or Aristotle. And then through through time, you get people like, you know, Thomas, St. Thomas Aquinas, who is tremendously influential or even before him, Augustine. And then you get into the Enlightenment. and, And bottom line is we look at all of that. We have not been trained up well in the great conversation or how these ideas came to bear on on who we are and where we are today. And so we're going to look, and this particular series, which is going to be be multiple parts, we're going to look at education in America. So joining me today is going to be Will Bushman. I thought we'd never get to the introductions. Will is looking at me with judgment. You're like, that you, was wanna, good. you want to take over? No, that was a great intro. <laughs> but our special guest today is Bethany Christian School, our, our very own church's uh, biggest outreach, Bethany Christian School, new headmaster. Eric Most. Newbie to the pod. Thanks for having me, guys. Appreciate it. Yeah, man. It's good to have you here. Well, Eric is, you know, obviously he has a special passion for education. And so as we're getting into this new series, you know, I thought I'd, I'd throw out the question, like when you think of modern education, what what it's producing with the generation that's coming out in the last few decades, and we've seen a, a pretty seismic shift to where the culture is kind of going, whoa, you know, and you have previous generations that are struggling to understand and, and make sense of this newer generation. All of that kind of traces back. So when you think of 
the major movements of the current generation? What comes to mind? Yeah. So these seismic shifts, they don't just happen, right? There's uh, inevitably this enormous iceberg of movement that has gone on underneath the surface. That's just now manifesting in this tip of the iceberg, namely the shift. And so, I mean, you, you have to go way back hundreds of years to start to unearth some of the cultural moves that have compounded and developed over time. Right. Um, so again, we're not just waking up in 2023 and all of a sudden all of these extraordinary claims that people are making about their inner selves and externalizing those feelings, they're not just suddenly happening. It's the product of development over time. And so people have written 700 page books. I'm thinking specifically of Christopher Watkin, his book, uh, also Carl Truman, 500 page books on the development of this. If you have the time, both of those are worth your while. But for the time being, I think it's important just to sketch out two important figures uh, some of their claims and how those have downloaded and implemented into American culture. So you could say it's the romantic roots of the American education system. So two really quick. So your first Descartes, and if you are familiar with that name, the immediate association is probably, I think, therefore I am. Mm -hmm. You guys are familiar with that. And so uh, even though this idea exists in other places, for the first time, Descartes is uh, putting a wedge between the mind and the body. Uh, and even though, again, we see this in other places historically, I think we see this in the early Christian church and some of the heresies uh, that are articulated there, it's the first time that it takes really deep root in the culture. And so as the mind and the body are set in opposition to each other, are set as sort of two separate distinct things, for the first time, as I just said earlier, they can then be put in opposition to each other. And so Descartes is setting the stage for the showdown between the internal feelings and the external reality. You can yeah, say, I mean, and you can say like even the, the quote, I think therefore I am. I mean, the, the basis of that is we can't know anything for sure. Yep. And so for, from the Christian perspective, we come at it and we say, you know what, I may not be able to see all things, but I have an authority that comes to me from another world that tells me things that are absolute and I can trust those, even though I might not be able to put my finger on it and measure it scientifically and, you know, go through all the rational process. Well, I believe in absolutes because I, God tells me that there are absolutes where Descartes is saying, you know, I can only, I can only trust any absolute that I can boil down to its absolute nature. And so, you know, he thinks, well, I might be in a dream or I might, you know, I might be in, in an alternate reality where I'm not, you know, the matrix or whatever, where things aren't really what they are. But I do know that I'm thinking. Right. And there is a process going on in my brain. So therefore I am. And so it sets itself up against, you know, kind of the diametrically opposed position from faith. Right. The way that you can distill it is this juxtaposition between the internal and the external. And so everything that you just described, Sam, in the Christian worldview, those external absolutes exist outside of myself. And mm -hmm. so in some sense, they are not dependent on me or my feelings. And again, coming from a Christian background, there's a certain freedom in that. That's incredible. Yeah. And so, that's so hard for me to even wrap my mind around the difference between internal and external. Right. So when that shift takes place of the internal, it's then the inner self kind of takes the wheel of identity mm -hmm. and identity formation. And so that sets the stage then for Rousseau and just two quick points here. And identity just, I mean, you could, everybody who's listening could probably see where we're going. Right. Right. But identity has become a major, major issue these days and our american answers to 
who am I have now suddenly in today's culture, romantic roots, which is informed by Descartes, Rousseau, and other movers and shakers in the romantic movement in the Enlightenment. So again, Rousseau takes this idea that we've introduced with Descartes and locates identity even further and more concretely in the psychological self. And so then all of a sudden, instead of that external reality, right, being true and being the captain of the ship of identity, now feelings become central. And on top of that, society then is seen on as exerting corrupt influences on the self. And so again, just an example of that, Rousseau is known for saying, man is born free, and yet everywhere he is in chains. So let's run that back through the external and the internal dichotomy. From a Christian worldview, we say that man is born into sin, original Mm -hmm. sin, and then therefore that original sin in each and every one of us creates a culture that is tainted and stained by sin. So it's um, the individual to the the corporate, Mm -hmm. right? Whereas what Rousseau is saying, yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, like, the the application of that or the way that you see that is, you know, we look at little toddlers and and you don't have to train them to lie. You don't have to train them to steal. You don't have to train them to not want to share their toys. They're born with this self-absorption. And the Christian comes to that and says, okay, well, the kind of the definition of sin is this self-obsession where Rousseau comes in, who's a, a thorough atheist who hates religion through and through. And he says, you know, well, first off, he doesn't buy into the categories of sin. He would look at that little toddler that is selfish and free and does whatever he wants and consider that liberty and say, you know, this is this is great. This kid is free and he's good. You know, he right. says man is basically born good, which right. is totally hostile to reality, I'll say. Yeah. <laughs> but the Christian doctrine. Yeah. So. Just revisiting that quote, man is born free and yet everywhere he is in chains. So that's going back to this idea of, okay, so boil the culture away. And then you can kind of see how this has unfolded in American culture such that if you boil everything external away, you are then your authentic self. Mm. And then you are encouraged, despite what's ever external, you are encouraged to embody those inner psychological feelings and authenticity right today authenticity is like the deconstruction movement where it's like you know who you really are is you know you've got to get rid of all the social conditioning of what the church did to you and what your parents did to you to get to your true authentic self because i've been hearing that word in christian circles especially among the younger generations you know i've deconstructed and and basically you walk away from god or your faith or or any system of religion yeah yeah, because and, all of that stuff was artificially imposed on who you really are. And it's interesting because in the stripping of external absolutes, so objective truth, the mm-hmm. objective truths that Christianity claims, new absolutes are instilled in the culture yeah. despite people realizing it, right? So now the the premier absolute, the character trait that's treasured above all else is authenticity. It's mm-hmm. Authenticity is the new absolute. And so... Um, many people who are kind of following this enlightenment romantic line of thought champion the idea of stripping away absolutes without realizing that they are reintroducing and imposing new ones. The very thing that they thought they were removing in the first place. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And if you don't think it's absolute, go challenge somebody's authenticity, you know, hundred percent, you know, and they will, society will scratch your eyes out these days. You know, you're not allowed to do that. And so, 
it's like they're uh, might be using the wrong words here, but it's like, you know, in their self-actualizing, it's like they've created their own system of morality that applies only to them that no one else can challenge. There's no, there's no broad umbrella of morality that, or absolutes that applies to all people because your authentic self sees nothing wrong with X, Y, Z identity or whatever behavior you want to chase after. And how dare I come and challenge your authentic self in the way that you were as you came out of the womb as a toddler when you were free until we imposed all this mess on you. Right. Which is another absolute, right? Right. And, yeah, exactly. And and just to kind of save you, right, this is just broad brushstroke, big 30,000 foot over you to save you from, you know, 1500 pages of reading. So these ideas then slowly, yeah, <laughs> these, I, well, I can all already imagine people being like, ah, oh, he missed this and he missed that. And then there's this and all of that's true. Just giving you the highlights. Um, so these ideas then um, of these romantic thinkers slowly over time, like a slow drip, implement themselves into American culture and then comprise what we now live in today. And so um, it's interesting to note, like when you step back and think of culture, what is culture? Uh, Christopher Watkin, he says that every culture deploys multiple patterns, narratives, pictures, and images, vocabulary to create a world. So the terminology that we're familiar with is a worldview. Mm -hmm. He uses this idea of social imaginary, which I like. It's new. You you kind of have to reorient yourself towards a new concept. Think it through, yeah. right? And so when he says that these worlds exist, the comparisons he makes are like the world of Star Wars or the world of Harry Potter. And so as people are very interested in those worlds, there's a shared experience of vocabulary of, Mm -hmm. you know, whatever the case may be. So if you say Wingardium Leviosa, that's, that's a, that's a world, right. That you are participating in. And so. And if you don't know what that means, you're not in the Harry Potter world. You're not in that world. And so, (laughs) so really what American culture is today is just this, these competing worlds Mm -hmm. that are butting up against each other. And, and you could talk about the dichotomy, the inter, you could say the that's, internal world or the external world, um, or the so old way of thinking and the new way of thinking. And I think, again, the, the reason why we have this polarization is because we just don't belong to the same world. That's exactly what yeah. I was just thinking. Like, like we talked about the umbrella, when you live under, you know, this idea that there is a God who reigns over all of humanity and his truth is the truth. You know, there's not your truth, my truth. Everybody can have a conversation and we can come along and we can, you know, negotiate where to go and what the optimal solutions are. But if you're in a totally different world, you have your own bubble and your own language and your own understanding of what right and wrong is that's totally different than my world. When we come to have a conversation, we don't even speak the same language. Mm -hmm. And so what we do is it creates all this insecurity in our culture and we have to run back to our own trench and talk about how dumb the other camp is, you know? Yeah. To, to, to <laughs> because it's jarring when you talk to somebody that is radically different than you believes that diametrically opposed everything from you. It's, it's disorienting when right. you, how, cause you walk away going, how in the world can that person believe that? I don't understand. And yet they're utterly 100% convinced that their convictions are reality. Right. To relocate it back in the, the idea of worlds, it would be similar to, I think American culture can be summarized as uh, you're watching Harry Potter four and all of a sudden Darth Vader walks into the great hall of Hogwarts <laughs> and, and you're just like, what is going on? You have yeah. to import all of this new background in, in a world that really yeah. isn't compatible. They're incompatible. They're two yeah. different worlds. 
And the reality is both worlds would look at that. If you're a diehard Star Wars fan, you'd go, you're ruining it. And Harry Potter fans would go, get Darth Vader out of here. You're ruining it. And, you know, it's like you you have to be in your own trench. You can't you can't speak to each other without offense. Yeah, 100 percent. I think another uh, interesting. I think another image that helps again, this is all from Watkins book. He makes an analogy. I'm using a figure of speech to introduce the idea of figures of speech. He, he talks about how culture is comprised of figures. So he uses this idea of figures of speech and their patterns and rhythms of language that can be filled with uh, anything you want. So um, it, like an alliteration, right? The alliteration is this broader category, and then you can create a bunch of different things, you know, double L's or double P's that all fill in the same sort of figure, so to speak. Give so us an speak. example of alliteration, Will. Rambunctious, Riley. Right. <laughs> all right. Saucy Sam. I'm just thinking there's there's people out there. <laughs> I like that one. Centric Eric. Saucy Sam. <laughs> Centric Eric is that oh eccentric. This is like the alpha <laughs> intro. How you remember people's names? That is true. Terrible Tom. <laughs> epic. Uh, there you ep- go. Epic yeah. Eric. That's not. Don't read into that one. <laughs> <laughs> but it gives the system that you can. <laughs> we got all kinds of podcast material to yeah. to destroy your relationship with your father in law. <laughs> Makes it sound like we've said a lot of awful stuff. That's what I'm going air. for. I know <laughs> we have not. If Tom ever listens to this, he's gonna be he's gonna be really insecure at the next Thanksgiving. That's why we say it though, just to test if he ever listens to yeah, it. Yeah, he's it's true. so far so far so good. <laughs> it's, it's it's really kind of sad. Anyway, another figure. <laughs> if we can get the train back on the tracks here, boys. <laughs> Eric, keep it us see, keep us honest. This is why I had to throw him the line. I knew it. I knew it. I knew this would happen. <laughs> this is a great a great experience for my first pod. Um, so I going back to this idea of figures of speech. It's a broad category that can be filled with a lot of variation, but shares that that common denominator, mm-hmm. right? So it it's an interesting way of looking at culture. So if you look at that broad romantic category of everything internally becomes externalized and you trust those internal feelings. You can then fill that category with all sorts of different ways to express the internal. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so w- when, when people hear romantic, they're, they're going to hear, you know, oh, right. You know, that's not lovey yeah. dovey. But what, where does that word come from? Do you like, is it because they're kind of cousins because it's very much about feelings and what's inside. And it's like, you can't really understand why I'm so in love with Laura because it's my experience. I mean, is that part of it? Is that, yeah, that's, that's part of it. The way I understand it is just that, that shift to the internal, mm-hmm. that shift to the psychological, that shift to centralizing feelings as sort of the, the broad characteristics that define the romantic movement. Okay. Yeah. And we don't we don't like the conversations these days about truth being determined by feelings on 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 the on my side of the yeah, fence. Yeah, anyway. depending on where you fall, other people are thrilled <laughs> right. about that conversation. Yeah, it's like, what are you talking about? <laughs> I'm just thinking of, of various, you know, slogans. Like, well, here's one: facts over feelings. Have you ever heard? Have you ever mm-hmm, seen sure. that? Like, that's that's at the it's it's basically going back to like I believe in absolutes you are coming from this romantic tradition where feelings reign supreme facts over feelings. That would yeah. be a slogan, right? Some of them are a little more crass, right? Yeah. Can imagine. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's expand on that idea of, of figures. So uh, again, Watkin takes this a little bit deeper. He says, if figures of speech are patterns and rhythms of language, then figures in the broader sense 
our patterns and rhythms in creation, whether of matter, language, ideas, systems, or behavior. And so that's kind of the underlying idea of this social imaginary. It's patterns and rhythms in creation, language, ideas, systems, and behavior. And if you zoom back and you start to diagnose culture and you look at common denominators of institutions, of of movies, of shows, of these different cultural artifacts that are produced daily, you can start to identify those massive common denominators. Do you have any examples that are just handy on that? Hmm. Um, I mean, I think not off the top of, the he- of my head, but I think if you went into Spotify and listened to a song and then watched a video on YouTube and then watched a show on Netflix and then watched Barbie or something like that, <laughs> I think between all, all four of those are different platforms, right? Mm-hmm. And I think you could very easily find cultural artifacts, you know, one song, one clip, one show, one movie that all share that same pattern, rhythm, mm-hmm. system, whatever the case may be. And then as you zoom back and you start to recognize these patterns more broadly, you start to see how much of a vice grip that particular system has on culture as a whole. Mm-hmm. And then quite honestly, and again, 2023, you can find really no better time where this is very obvious. Um, you start to see, well, it's pervasive. It's just yeah. everywhere. There are, there are, you know, the, the Judeo-Christian worldview has 10 commandments. There are 10 cultural commandments today, okay. right? And I'd be curious, like, if you expounded, I wonder if we could create, like, what are the 10 cultural commandments Gosh. of 2023? Mm-hmm. And I think that's fascinating that you say that because you look at the next generation, you know, thinking 20 and below, and they all, and this is, I work with them all the time, so this is not meant to be offensive, but they think they're so unique. But then you look at all their stuff and they're sharing the exact same things. Like you were saying, they're all listening to the same music, watching the same shows. They all like the same TikTok. They all know the same dance. And so it's fascinating that like one strand of everything can fit through all of these lifestyles, mm-hmm. which is the craziest thing to think about. Like, cause it is a, like you were saying, like you're putting a lot more educational words to it, but it is a wild experience to just watch them and be like, oh, you guys all do the same exact things because you're all being taught by the same exact person. Which is crazy because think of a a common criticism of Christianity. How's that for an alliteration, a figure? Um, (laughs) Common criticism of Christianity is, oh, you're you're all just, uh, you're all the same. You're hegemonic. You all just do the same thing, especially like if you come from a high church background, like Catholic, right? If you walk into a Catholic church, if you're new to the Catholic church, and all of a sudden the priest says something and the whole congregation responds in the same words yeah. and the same motions at the same time, a lot of the, the secular criticism is like, oh, this is a, a freaking cult. Yeah, they're zombies. They're, yeah. they're not thinking at all. As Will just kind of articulated, they're doing the same thing, yeah. just culturally. You're all doing the same thing. You're, you know, the the artist in your, your AirPod, uh, AirPods, that's your priest. Yeah. And you are all, even though you're isolated, you're sitting under the same teaching, mm-hmm. right? Like, like you could, you could use, and there's a lot of thou shall not. Yes. And know? thou shalls. Yeah. Yeah. You right, could, yeah. You could use catechetical language to completely articulate all of culture in that they are ultimately worshiping. And, and you could go to James K. Smith for a lot of that stuff too. He's, he's awesome when it comes I knew to that. Eric would not be able to resist <laughs> citing that book. I'm sorry. I mean, you are what you love is, is foundational to a lot of this stuff and contributes really meaningfully to it. But um, yeah, the cathedral of the world is far more worshipful in a lot of ways than our sanctuaries and cathedrals. And they spend a lot more time in theirs. A hundred percent. Like you even go to church once you go an hour, an hour and a half a week, but then you look at 
you know, our screen time and TikTok's four hours a day, eight hours a day. Yeah. And you're like, oh, I wonder what is actually teaching these kids. It's catechesis. It's yeah. training. It's spiritual. Again, not the ones we want, but it's a form of spiritual discipline. Exactly. That, yeah. And so again, like coming out of the classroom in the last 10 years, something I asked my students uh, is I said, okay, add together all of the uh, spiritual time that you spend, right? So whether that's uh, in devotions in the morning, whether that's Bible class, chapel, small groups, church, youth group, whatever, rarely, rarely did a student surpass four hours a week. And in many cases, those four hours um, were forced on them. Were forced on them. Exactly. Mm-hmm. They're forced on them. So even if those four hours, they weren't enjoyable, they weren't engaged, they weren't yeah. participating in the life of the, you know, the classroom or the youth group, whatever the case may be. Youth group, they come on their own because there's pizza and Will. Heck who, yeah. Who could resist Will? <laughs> um, but right. So they're, they're disengaged in those four hours. And then if you stack that up against their time in their alternative sanctuary being catechized in the cathedral of the world. Um, it doesn't, we don't stand a chance. Like there's no, there's no wonder why, uh, all of the statistics point towards the church, just hemorrhaging this next generation and them fleeing into other places. It's because they're being trained in a different church. Um, a small C church, a church that's not actually worshipful, but maybe worshipful towards the bales of the yeah, world. Something else. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. Something else. So when you asked them about time, do you remember what their responses were? The, so the amounts? the amounts of screen time of the, so four hours for devotional. Do you remember? At most, it was all. I mean, the the common. I was going to say that's surprising. It was, it was two, like okay. two, maybe one, right? Um, sometimes Bible. I mean, I guess the forced ones were Bible class and chapel, right? So so two, um, but again, those are those are forced. Uh, and then on the other side, gosh, I had. I had one kid with 14 hours of screen time on average per day, 14. So if you break <laughs> I that, 24 like, hours like, in a day, yeah, right? I'm right. just, I thought I was <laughs> dumb so for a second. What I did was I, I hopefully didn't shame the kid. Hopefully he's not listening to this right now, but I just put, <laughs> we'd be shocked if he was listening <laughs> to this. Right. If you are good for you, <laughs> yeah, he's my, grown. My so teaching so. has worked. Yeah. So I just wore 24 minus 14 equals 10, like, and then sleep, how much is he sleeping? Three hours, maybe. Right. And so if you add together the composite effect of very little sleep, not engaged in any meaningful way in the Christian church, even though he goes to a Christian school and is part of a Christian family, I mean, he's just alone with his digital priest, so to speak, consuming all of the content that this worldly cathedral has to offer. And so, I mean, it, it, and then I, you know, I asked him like, do you want to grow spiritually? He's like, yeah, of course. Like, all right, well put the phone down. Right. Because that's <laughs> okay. Going, tying that back, like the phone has now become the medium or the conduit through which this romanticism is communicated. The romantic roots of, of American culture taking root in the educational system. Um, that's how it's getting to him. Do you think after this whole phone conversation, I know a lot of it, Sam and I talk about this a lot is can we just like destroy phones, get rid of social media, which we can't, we would like that if we could, mm-hmm. we think that would be a great solution to the yeah. next generation's problems. If we had a magic wand, but we can't. And it's hard to watch them and judge them in it because some of us are just as bad. I'm, I'm not great at this either. So it's almost like we've lost influence because we stopped creating Christian content that is meaningful. Yeah, I do feel like there's a shift. I'm actually getting for the first time and and I don't I might be alone in this, but I do feel a little bit more hopeful that mm. 
the Christian content creation is on the upswing. Yeah. Because it used to be like when I first came to Christ in my 20s, the stuff that was being produced was like I felt like I had to apologize for it if I ever watched it with someone. Mm. <laughs> and now I feel like the storytellers are getting better where, you know, you're talking about how the the other side of my trench, you know, so I'm in my world of the Christian absolutes and everything else. And there's a world that's coming at us that has an agenda that it's pushing really, really strong. But now it has become so enslaved to its own own messaging. You know, every movie has to have, you know, a, a, a gay couple. The police are going to be corrupt. The corporations are all going to be evil. If And if there's a zealous Christian in this show... He's the bad guy. Like, let me just let me just solve the great mystery for you. If there's a Christian who really, really believes in Christ and is very public about his faith, he's guilty of whatever the crime is. And it's like this formula that you find over and over and over again, and basically all all created media these days. You know the you know the deal. Intersectionality and all that garbage. Yeah, Ted Lasso season three. <laughs> that I can't stand and it ruins, it ruins it all. Right. You know, it makes it divisive. It makes it all about envy. It makes it all about how, you know, we've, these, these are the evil people over here and we're the oppressed ones, but we're going to win, you know? And it's, it's like, you can just, you can see it imposed in all of the art of, of the, the other side, which used to, I think, produce the best stuff. And, and I think it was that best stuff that started winning people into this romantic stuff where it's like, man, I could be whatever I want to be. I can dream. I can hope. And now that they've captured it, it's so suffocating and so deadening to the soul that I think people are naturally going to start looking somewhere else for hope. And there's no better story to be told than the gospel and all that it offers. And you're starting to see some of that being created I mean, granted, like Hollywood and the entertainment industry has such a stranglehold on everything that you have to have your own studios. And you have, I mean, so we got to build from the ground up because what was originally created, you know, in the entertainment industry has been entirely locked up by people who are hostile to the Christian message. Well, really quickly, let me jump on that. Think of think of cultural creations or what I've referred to as cultural artifacts as the litmus test of the dominant narrative of culture. And so as you were kind of referencing of what used to be created, think of um, immediately after the Renaissance, Mm -hmm. right? What were the, if you go to Europe and you walk through the museums, what are you going to see? What are the most famous pieces of art depicting? Yeah. La Pieta. It's, it's everything that has to do with Christ and everything that, because that, that had the cultural social, imaginary at the time. That's right. Um, and, and now you look at it and it's the dominant cultural narrative is expressive individualism and authenticity. And so that's what you see popping up again and again uh, in these cultural artifacts. But so I want to maybe zag when you guys are zigging or zig when you guys are zagging, whatever way you want to take that. So you offered one way to fight back as creating Christian content, right? We got to be storytellers. We got to win people's imagination. What about just not playing the game altogether. So in other words, what about just like a life of monasticism, like digital, deliberate, deliberate digital poverty, just retreating from the space because, and, and I, I, I see the eye rolls. If you guys, if you guys, <laughs> it was, had, it was a lot. I rolled pretty cameras, hard. There's a lot of eye rolls, but he not only eye rolled, he did like a full neck thing. <laughs> like he might need chiropractor, yeah. like <laughs> neck brace. <laughs> But the, the point being is 
creating a more compelling analog community mm-hmm. to woo people out of the digital spaces that they don't have the maturity to handle. So I agree. And I hope that Christians with the spirit dwelling in us, we have, and hopefully have the ability to navigate these cultural spaces, these content spaces with wisdom and hopefully redeem them. Mm-hmm. But I, I don't know. I'm just attracted by the alternate route of an analog life of unplugging. And, and I know that might not be totally possible in the 21st century, but when I'm good with my screen time, I feel like I'm healthier. I feel like my mind is Completely. clearer. I think yeah. I'm more productive. I think I'm more uh, personable with my friends and my community. Like, mm-hmm. There are real, tangible, immediate benefits um, to at least living a very restrained digital life. If I could wave a wand, like yeah. all of technology that deals with full social Luddite. media, like for real, like yeah. I, we're, I'd be raising barns, you know, <laughs> you know, because I really do feel like it's toxic. Like it, it really, it, it doesn't do much good for my soul. I mean, yeah. apart from being able to listen to podcasts or watch sermons or, or things like that, that are, that are actually helping me to form wisdom and to seek the Lord. Sure. It really isn't. It hasn't been good. But right. for me, you know, to to zag again, <laughs> yeah. Like I, I love when I see things bombing and yeah. the box office that are advancing <laughs> narratives that are hostile to or, to the gospel or companies hemorrhaging money and having to sell off shares. To, yeah, you, to but that, you know, yeah. even that that kind yeah. of grieves me because I remember what that company once was, or you know, like. The Budweiser thing. Let's right. just call yeah. it. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Like, we, we're talking <laughs> yeah. about Bud Light. Yeah. Right? So, want to want to speak vaguely, just in case they didn't want to go there. But Sam took but, it. But you remember the heroes? <laughs> you know the the old commercials that were kind of funny, where it was real American heroes, and it was like this one's for you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But it but it was like a spoof. This one's for you, Budweiser marketing executive. <laughs> yeah. And it was mocking mocking what they did. <laughs> But it's kind of sad. I don't want to see these companies, you yeah. know, what I want to do is to see them lose the insanity, you know, and I know that this is presumptive. I'm, I'm assuming that the other side is insane and we're talking about trenches, but I do like they're very hostile to the Christian worldview. And I feel that they have made themselves the enemy to which I, to that, which I hold most precious. Yeah. And to your point on on talking about Descartes and Rousseau, like it's not just that they believed that you could internalize truth and ignore the objective realities, but what Rousseau, who believed, like okay, well you're you're born innocent and all your initial desires are great and you should run with them, but society comes and stifles your inner truth and who you were made to be and all that stuff. But Rousseau is most known for social contract theory, which we'll get into in a future episode. But in that theory, what he believes is, okay, if people can agree on what should be the truth, like what makes them free, then the government exists to come and to crush anything that stands in the way of them chasing after that. And so when you see, you know, today, modern Christians getting upset you know, everybody's like, why are you so upset about this particular thing or that particular thing? Well, there's a ton of a ton of libertarian Christians that are like, I don't really care, but it's when you start seeing the stifling of speech where it's the government that's now coming in and imposing the requirement that you must affirm 
the other behaviors that are coming from this internal idea of morality, that's where it's like crazy dangerous. And you see, you know, the Michigan legislature that's now, you know, looking to impose fines and even jail time if you use the wrong pronouns, like that's kind of scary. Or California that's rewriting code right now to make it to where if you don't affirm your child's gender, you're categorized along with people in the same way that they use categories to take away custody from parents. And so people in California that are that are fervent Christians are now thinking, oh my goodness, if I stay here and this happens to me and I don't affirm my child's gender, can this be used against me to strip custody from me? And that's where Rousseau gets really dangerous because it's not just, hey, your truth is your truth. It's your truth must be embraced by everybody else and everybody else must recognize your truth as the truth. And that's where it starts crushing liberties. And that's where it gets really dangerous for the church. And we need to be mindful and wise enough to speak up. And so I am defensive. I don't want my kids being raised up in a world that looks at them as though they need to be stifled and put down because they hold these archaic views that don't fit into everybody's ability to just imagine their own reality. Right. Right. It's, that's going to be a hard future for them if they continue you know, to tell the truth absolute God-defined truth is becoming really controversial today. And the more of this art that they make and push that where it, where it is like you get to imagine your own stuff and your own perceptions are more important than reality itself. That's dangerous. That's dangerous. You know, I think there's a quote out there that I've seen a few times recently, like, if you can if you can make people believe the absurd, you can make them commit atrocities. You know, if they are if they are so easily swayed into believing things that are utterly absurd, which we got a lot of that going on. <laughs> can we think of any historical examples where that may have taken place? <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I'll tell you. Uh, let's go to I mean, this is this probably well, this, this is, are we going so to Hitler now? Are we going to Hitler? We're going to Hitler. Like, I want you to stop for a moment, and I want you to think that the German society at the time of Hitler was regarded as having the best engineers. They had some of the best philosophers. Yeah, we stole them all. We, I mean, right? Operation They're, Paperclip. That's real. Okay, I, well, that's another episode. Mark it down. But anyway... They've got all the best minds, right? Everybody looks at Germany. It's like, man, they, they're producing the best art, and you got the best musicians and you know classical musicians, and and then they, it's the Holocaust. So like, you've got you know the society that's producing the quote unquote smartest people and the most capable people that commits the worst atrocity. And how does that happen? You get them to believe something that's absurd, which was an abandonment of the absolutes. The, the God-ordained absolute truths, once that was abandoned, game over, and atrocities came. And every time you see a regime that does that to people and then mows them down, it's because that the collective has embraced something absurd. And as long as we're here historically at the Holocaust, that's on me. Sorry, everyone. Um, it's interesting to look at the church's participation and endorsement of not the Holocaust, obviously, but of Germany's leadership and direction, mm -hmm. um, because a lot of them were complicit in that mm -hmm. trajectory, which is interesting when uh, cultural forces are the ones leading the charge of yeah. of society as opposed to the church. And that's right. And so just as a warning, and that should be a warning to every society that ever was, because 
every time there's a cultural shift, there is a there is a, a huge portion of the church that is so cowardly that is caught up in the stream. It's like slavery. There were a number of pastors that would preach on how slavery was justified and and yeah, ridiculous right. stuff like that. And so there's a there's a hesitation in the church to speak truth. And when the church fails to be the prophetic voice that brings the truth of God to bear on a culture that's losing its mind, the church bears culpability for its cowardice. And I'm getting to the point now in our modern absurdities where it's like, church, it's time to get bold. Yeah. Yeah. You wonder how we'll be viewed in a hundred years. Bring, and when I say bold, I'm not talking like the stupid, you know, you're going to hell, you right, know, like right, right. we're not picketing of, funerals. Correct. That, okay. None of that stupid let's, stuff. Let's, let's, let's be do clear. It with an abundance of love and a care for people that are made in the image of God, you want to bring mercy and hope to them. Your heart is for the person who's in the quote unquote other trench, but good grief. Like we've got to be able to speak truth. And it, it, we live in a culture where orthodoxy of the other side is so dead concrete set that it's really dangerous to speak. It feels like. And any time where that freedom starts to feel infringed, like you're scared to speak up because of what culture might do to you, we're near a, temp- a tipping point, Yeah, I think. Yeah, that's good. Hey, guys, this has been great. I got to bail. Ugh. I've got another meeting that uh, I just got pinged in 10 minutes. Do you feel like you've wrapped up what you wanted to say? No, I feel like I, I uh, took us on a good journey. I feel like I, feel I had like, a great time. Yeah. All right, cool. Yeah, yeah. We, hopefully the first of, of many. I mean, we somehow managed to say Bud Light. You said gay couple. We somehow. <laughs> what got, did I say? Gay couple. We got the Nazis. <laughs> Westboro Baptist, real Hail Mary. That was on me. <laughs> so I think we covered the bases. All right. I learned about four new words. <laughs> what? what do you I don't know any of them. <laughs> he made catechesis into one that I've never heard. Cate- catechetical. <laughs> catechetical. That's the one. <laughs> That's a, that's a good one though. I know. I was just breaking saying. down the word. I'm like, I think I know what it means, it's but it's not positive. Fun, it's super fun to say. <laughs> Catechetical. That's that's awesome. But oh man, Eric, appreciate you joining yeah. us. Um, did you did you appreciate me? Well, he, you always join. Okay, I just want a little bit of love. You should you should be the one who is saying, Eric, I appreciate <laughs> well, you too. Like I did. I'm always here. On record, I did learn a. I, I learned a lot. That's why I was so quiet the first half. It was just, I was taking so much in. Do you, do you want to give the summary? Uh, there's some internal, external stuff. Yep. There's a couple of umbrellas involved. <laughs> <laughs> some some subsuming. Awesome. There's some figures out so, there good, somewhere. Good, yeah. Like alliteration. So, so to, to, to bring this, going back all the way, sorry, this we're ramping up again, but going we back coming to, in for the landing. to <laughs> Plato, where Plato's talking about the forms, and the idea was you looked at, you tried to discern truth from looking at the natural world, and he would talk about, you know, p- contemplating the forms and finding the beauty and the true in the way that the world worked, and it was all external. And that's always been the way that philosophy worked until you get to these romantics, right? Where now all of a sudden it's truth is kind of what you want it to be. Yep. It's it's your own. And it's where a lot of the moral relativism and things like that come from. And we can see two trains. One, yep. is, one is one of absolutes in Christianity. And the other one comes from Descartes and Rousseau. But this is a great conversation to talk about like really quickly how we got to a place where we can imagine our own realities. 
So thank you so much for joining us, uh, Eric. It was a it was a blast. Hope to have you on some future episodes. Awesome. Thank you, guys. I know hope you got to a, see you next time. I know you got a busy job, but I hope you can join us. So we appreciate everybody joining us. Have a blessed week, and we will see you on the next episode. And hopefully... We're still on the air, hopefully. We're, we're still allowed on our <laughs> platforms. Yeah. Just give me one time. You had yeah. me on one time. <laughs> who who knew we'd burn this podcast out? Yeah. Eric's going to have picketers outside of his office. Close to 300 episodes don't, when we don't, went down. Don't send this to the parents. <laughs> All right. Have a great week, everyone. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater.